0: You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. So today, uh, we are continuing our, our series called Carriers. Last week, I shared about the importance of the good news The message of Jesus is the most important message that human lips have ever spoken and human ears have ever heard. It's the message that impacts eternity. It's the message that rescues and saves and restores and prepares a home in heaven. It's the message of Jesus who came for us. And and as we look through this series, Carriers, we're talking about different things that we're called to carry. And some things we're not called to carry. Some things we're called to lay down. Sometimes we're actually in life. We pick up some things along the way. Anybody ever uh, take way too many bags on vacation? Every time, I, I'm not going to ask which of you, if it's your spouse or you, your wife or husband, that, that do that. Uh, but but uh, I love Pastor Jason and Leslie have this like competition, and it's Leslie. It actually is. She's determined to get their entire family's suitcase all in one like all their stuff, which is a miracle with seven of them. It's incredible. Uh, but but I'll just tell you this, that sometimes we pick up things along the way that we're called to release. Things like shame and guilt and fear and, 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 and bondage to sin and all these things that may keep us from moving forward. And today we're going to have a little bit different focus. The message title, if you're taking notes, is I didn't catch your name. I didn't catch your name. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And this is a uh, it's a little bit different story. I'm going to be honest before you get into this. It's a little bit different. And, and there's a lot of great stories in the book of Acts, which is actually the, the beginning of the early church. So, so it's the start of what we're all a part of. It's the start of what began 2,000 years ago with a, a small group of people in the upper room and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Jesus saying to go into all the world. What started there continues to this day, and we get to be a part of it. But verse 11 tells an unusual story that would lead to the beginning of the church In Ephesus Uh, and here's what it says in verse 11 now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul let me just say in religion any miracle can be unusual but but there's like so many things happening and God moving in so many ways that they have to have a whole category of unusual miracles like, like, there's the normal miracles, and then there's unusual miracles. Like, like, this is not the normal routine stuff, but I'll just say, if there's any such thing as a normal miracle, uh, they've experienced it. And, and let me just say this, sometimes we think, well, what happened in the days of Paul, and what happened in the days of the early church, that, that's not for today, but I'm just going to tell you, the same God who did miracles then is the same God who does miracles today. The same God who changed lives then is the same God who changes lives today. Thank you, three of you. The same God who loved people that we read about in the book of Acts, who are blind and broken and lame and hurting and bound, the same Jesus who loved them is the same today and forever. And, and I love this because it says unusual miracles happen, and then it describes what they are. So even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from the body, from his body, from Paul's, to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. So this is just like, it's, it's the only time something like this is mentioned in the whole Bible, but it's unusual. Uh, then some of the itinerant uh, Jewish exorcists took it up, and that's not like people who lead people to exercise. Okay. <laughs> They took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those that had evil spirits. And they said, we exorcise you by Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered back and said, Jesus, I know. No surprise, the devil's well familiar with the one who crushed his head. Jesus I know, I even know Paul, but who are you? Who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that these seven sons of Sceva tried to flee out of the house, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. We'll revisit that in a moment. It says this became known to all the Jews and Greeks who dwelt in Ephesus fear fell on all of them and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified that means it was exalted it was lifted up it was not treated as common or ordinary but it was magnified among the people and many who had believed came confessing and even telling their deeds revival begins to break out and also many of those who practiced uh, witchcraft or magic brought their uh, books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of them and a total 50,000 pieces Of silver, So the word of the Lord, listen to this, grew mightily and prevailed. This would be the start of what would turn into 40,000 people professing the name of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. Would become the largest church of the early church in the ancient world and and, and would be what, what would turn the world upside down in so many ways. And yet it started with a moment that was unusual. Can I just say that there's some things in our life that God does that are unusual to the status quo? That we think things are going to always be the same. They're always going to be the way we've always seen them. And that's kind of what religion does. It kind of systematizes the ordinary, what we can control. We like to reduce God down to a formula we can understand. But then we find out the God of the Bible likes to sometimes color outside the lines of religion. Tradition. Tradition's not bad, except when it keeps people from life. And, and, and this, this, this God is so passionately in pursuit of people that he's even willing to use a handkerchief and an apron to do something in their life. Like something unusual happens. and Can I just tell you that God wants to work in your life in unusual ways? Things that you think are just ordinary, things that you think will never change. God says, no, no, I've never met an impossibility I can't change. When people see what we carry, the message of Jesus, and what it can do in our lives. Religion's never changed anybody, but you know what hope does? The world's looking for peace. We have more stuff, but not more peace. We have more stuff, more access to information. I just saw a thing this week where a guy literally wired some kind of a system into his brain so that he can communicate, he can do Google searches with some kind of AI system. I thought, first of all, that's the last thing I want to do, but i've had enough computer viruses over the years but but here's here's the thing we have more access to stuff and knowledge and information and resource and all these things than ever before and yet we have no more peace no more fulfillment no more joy people can have something temporary temporary happiness but it never leads to life apart from jesus so we can have something that the world can look at and go what you have is unusual in fact, I believe the greatest witness to the world is not a sermon preached. It's not even a song sung, but it's a life that carries Jesus. The real living Jesus carries hope, carries joy, carries real peace that comes from a God where people could look at you and go, they may be going through hell right now, but they still are celebrating. They still are worshiping. They still are showing up. They're still committed to their family. They're still, they're still, they're still fighting. They're still, they're still staying encouraged. That takes something beyond you to do. It's unusual. People see freedom. I've had this over the years. We had a girl years and years ago at our church who walked in the doors. She sat in the back of the service and, and feeling just so much shame, but she actually came in. She was addicted, highly addicted to both meth and heroin at that moment, showed up into the room. And I love programs that help people on steps to recovery. They're, they're important. They're necessary. But what I loved about what Jesus did in this woman's life in a moment is she had a radical transformation where in the back of the room she encountered a Jesus that brings un. Usual freedom. And I love this because late, years later, she would share her testimony with people, her story, and people would ask, Well, what drugs did you take to get off drugs? She goes, I just started worshiping Jesus. I started, uh, 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 Are you with me? And, and uh, okay. <laughs> she actually became one of our worship leaders. It was amazing. But I want you to understand this because there's something unusual that takes place. And it leads to an encounter with seven, uh, seven sons of Sceva. They're the sons of the chief priest, the, the religious leader of the day. And they show up to this guy's house and they go, hey, uh, we're going to cast out these evil spirits, these demons, by Jesus, who we've heard this Paul guy talk about. And they borrow a name. Can I just take a moment and tell you about that name? The name of Jesus, it says in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 4, it says this, that there is no other name given under heaven by which man is saved. No other name. No other one came back from the grave, conquered death, conquered sin, paid the price for our sins. No one else, there's no other name. Well, that just offends me. (laughs) I just don't like that. Well, listen, if you were dying of a terminal illness and I told you there is one cure, you're not going to go, well, I'm offended because I'd rather have a different cure. If there was only one escape hatch out of a burning building... You wouldn't worry about your feelings at that moment. You would say, I need to come to life. And that's what Jesus does. He's the only name. But also this, Philippians 4, or Philippians chapter 2, excuse me, says that God has highly exalted him and given Jesus the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, everything that has a name must bow its knee. Everything in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. Even the demons tremble at that name that we sing today. That's the name that these guys came along and borrowed. See, names matter. Names are significant. In fact, in the Bible, the Hebrew word for name is Shem, and it means to brand or to mark something. And names would, you know, we can sometimes pick names from a baby name book, like what's the top ten names of of 2023, and we find what's popular, and, and maybe you didn't do that. Maybe you gave your kids a name that was significant. I found out this, that most people uh, find out how many people they don't like when they're trying to find a name for their kid. Well, what about this name? No, not that name. <laughs> not you. You're all more spiritual. Okay. The names were significant. They meant something. They meant that it was a description of their life, or it was something prophetic about their future. So names were, they carried weight, they carried importance, they carried a promise of a destined future. And some names were a curse. Some names that were given in the Bible were names that signified the pain of the one giving the name to their offspring. They, they would continue the pain of their life and pass it on to the next. And, and, and I'm not talking today, when I talk about a name, I want to ask you a question. Point number one is this, what name do you carry What name do you carry? Because there's the name of Jesus we are called to carry. And then there's a lot of names sometimes that we pick up along the journey. We pick up along the way. And I'm not talking about the name on your birth certificate and what your mom and dad called you, but I mean the things that we pick up that that are given to us, that are spoken over us, that define who we are at our present circumstance, but are not called to be, that are not meant to define who we are. I meet people all the time that are still carrying the pain of, of what people did to them, what they said about them. In the world, we find identity and we find our name in how much money we make or how much status we have and, uh, or, or what kind of house we live in or what car we drive. We can find our name in who's with us or who's not with us. I found this even in Working with people, counseling, talking through things. There's some people that are so desperate to find who they really are, they're willing to do a Google search. And I'm not—I'm jo- I'm serious. Looking for identity and purpose, and 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 you've got to know what name you carry. You've got to know who you are. Your name matters. The name of Jesus matters because we as the church are called to carry the name. The seven sons of Sceva confront these demonic powers with a name that they don't carry, but they've borrowed. See, for a lot of Christians, even the name of Jesus is just how we know the prayer's over, let's eat. And religion always reduces something that carries power and authority to something routine. Repeated without power, without faith attached, without expecting things to change. In Acts three, Peter and John are on their way to pray, and, and while they're on their way to the temple to pray, they encounter a man who's uh, he's 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 broken physically, he's infirm, and he's laid every day to beg for for money beside the gate of the temple. As pa- as worshippers would pass by, they would he, this man depended on their generosity to survive, and. And he's unable to help himself. So Peter and John are on their way, and they look at the man, and they don't. They stop. They don't move past him. Can we never be a church that's moving past those that are hurting? Let's never be a church that walks past the broken, past the hurting, past those that, that need the very thing that we carry. That was good, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because here's what happens. Peter and John walk by and they say, well, we silver and gold we don't have. We didn't bring our wallet to church today. Here's what I do have, though. In the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that man was healed. The the crowd gathers and they go, what's different about these two, Peter and John? They say, don't look at us as if it's our godliness or our righteousness that made this man walk, but let me tell you about the name. Let me tell you about the name and what saved that man. See, the difference between one group, the sons of Sceva, and the other group, Peter and John, is one group borrowed the name. The other two carried the name. They carried the name because they knew the one who bore the name. They knew Jesus. Our mission as a church It comes from the mission of the capital C church that we want to see everyone know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, discover purpose. It all starts and ends with knowing Jesus. And Peter and John knew this Jesus. They knew Jesus. They experienced the power of that name and they became carriers of that name to others. What name do you carry? Names matter, names are important. Anybody ever have trouble remembering somebody's name? Okay, if I've ever called you by the wrong name, let me just say publicly, I apologize. As a pastor, there's times where I forget names, and, and I try to my best to remember, and sometimes I've even taken it too far and called you the wrong name. I did this, we had a, a young adult girl in our church named Emma, if you're listening, Emma, shout out to you. Uh, she went off to college and she was a part of a young adults group. Well, when I first met Emma, uh, I, I, I ran into her in the community. My wife and I were out and, and, and Jenna had to go into the restroom and while she was in there, I, this girl comes up to me and says, oh, Pastor Brian, I go to your church and she introduces herself to me, tells me her name and, and, and he, especially the men in here, like, have you ever heard something but not actually listened? She said, my name's Emma, and and somehow I changed Emma to something else that I, to this day, don't remember what I came up with, but I made up a name for her. And and so my wife comes out, and and I go, oh, Jenna, you've got to meet, and I bring her over, and I introduced her, but I called her the wrong name. I don't know, let's say it was LaToya. I said, meet LaToya. (laughs) And Emma goes, here's what Emma says, that's a nice name, but my name's Emma. True story. What name do you carry? Point number two is who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? The sons of Skeva come and they they tell this man possessed, really speaking to the spirit, but they say this to this evil spirit: uh, we cast you out, we we tell you to leave in the name that, that Jesus, this name of Jesus that Paul talks about. And they borrow something, but can I tell you the demons know the difference between religion and relationship? They know the difference between the form and the presence of God. They know the difference between no authority and authority. And they respond with this, we know Jesus, we know Paul. Can we just be a people that when we give the devil such a headache that he goes, oh, they're awake. (laughs) Oh, they just showed up to their, their family gathering where I was controlling the conversation and they just brought peace. Oh, oh, oh! they showed up to work today, and they brought something that no one else carries into the building. Because hell notice Paul. Oh, Paul, we know. <laughs> I want to be that kind of person. And, and, and here's, here's what they say, and it's, it's my question for you today. Uh, Paul, we know. Jesus, we know. But who are you? And I know we say, who do you think you are? Like as, it's usually like an insult, like, who do you think you are? Who's this person that's telling me? And, and we say it like that, but it really is a good question. Who do I think I am? Because I believe the, the difference. So Israel, Israel is slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God sets them free, brings them to the Red Sea, brings them into the desert to take them to a promised land. And from the place where they were four centuries, that's longer than our nation has existed They've been slaves for generations in Egypt. God brings them out, but because they were slaves in Egypt, they carried some names that, didn't, that weren't meant to define who they are. They weren't slaves. They were the people of God. They weren't to live broken and bound forever. They were to be set free, a people of promise, brought into the promised land, and God had to bring them, but before he could take them into the promised land to be more than conquerors, They had to answer that very same question, who are we? And I know that generation that went into the promised land didn't have the right answer because here's what happens. The moment they come into the promised land, they see giants, they see walls that are too big, they look at problems and they go, oh, we can never deal with that. Every time they ran into a crisis, they got mad and said, we should go back to Egypt. (laughs) Who do you think you are? It would take another generation to come into the promised land and go, no, we know who we are. More importantly, we know who our God is. And this promised land is ours, and these giants are bred, and and everything we're going to face, we're going to overcome. Why? Because our God is with us, and we bear his name. And there is something different about a people. There is something different about a person that can answer that question. And if you don't answer that question, who are you, you'll let life and people and circumstances define who you are. The world will call you by the name of your lowest valley, not your mountain peak. By your greatest failure, by your greatest pain, by the, the losses you've experienced. And to be honest, sometimes we call ourselves by that same name. I don't even need there to be a devil to have a tough time. I can mess my own life up just fine. And we carry names that didn't come from our God. Who do you think you are? I'm going to give you four quick stages, I believe, of the enemy's tactics against us when we don't know who we are in Christ. The first thing that happens to them when they can't answer that question is this. They are overpowered. He defeats them. He defeats these seven sons of Sceva. They are defeated or overpowered. And something happens in my life. Whenever I'm not, whenever, listen, you are created to rule over some things in your life that are now ruling over you. You are called to overcome some things that you're being overcome by. And when you know who you are in Christ and you know what the, the word of God says about your life and what Jesus paid a price for you to to experience. When you know what Jesus has done for you when I was a kid my dad or my grandfather uh had a really unique uh childhood. He grew up on Alcatraz Island from six years old to sixteen years old. He was not a convict <laughs> on the island, but his dad was a prison guard and and he grew up around the most notorious criminals in the United States at the time and and he grew up but 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 Years later, he, was, he wrote a book about his experience, and as a kid, I would go there and see him signing books and talking about his experience, and I would visit as a young child, I think I was like six, seven years old, and I would walk into prison cells that used to house the, the, the toughest nails, toughest criminals that the nation had, and I'd walk into that cell, but my experience was very different than theirs, because I could walk out anytime. And, and, and Jesus has paid such a price that sin no longer has to hold you in its prison cell. That shame no longer has to hold you. That guilt no longer has to hold you. That fear no longer has to rule and dictate your life. But the enemy will use a lie to defeat you. To overpower you. To say things will never change. You'll never be different. God's forgotten about you. The next stage is he prevailed against them and i believe that describes what happens when a lie and when the enemy through his tactics controls us whenever anything is negatively controlling my life it is replaced the leadership we put this in a biblical term the lordship of jesus in my life in that area when god's leading me something else isn't but when that is leading my life or controlling my life fear controls Shame controls. There's a lot of stuff that controls us. Discouragement controls. Whenever anything is controlling your life, it's replaced something that belongs, the rulership of God. But also, let me just add this, it's done so illegally. Because you were bought at a price. Listen, too many people, now I know the sons of Sceva, they're not believers in Jesus, they borrowed it, I already told you that. But sadly, there's many Christians where the enemy is stealing your lunch and eating it too. (laughs) He's, he's, He's doing these very same things in your life. And today I want to equip you to overcome it. Because it's time for freedom from every... There's things that are compulsive, oppressive, obsessive even. When anything controls your life, it does so illegally and illegitimately. Jesus said this, John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in the word, my word... You are my disciples, and you'll know the truth. You'll know what's true, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 36, therefore, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I love the story in Acts where they, they take, it says that they took and made a bonfire with what held them back, what bound them. In fact, it was a bonfire made of something not worthless, but valuable to them. It was worth thousands of pieces of silver. I read that to you. But they made a bonfire because they came to the place where they realized this thing has controlled my life, it's controlling my future, it's robbing. There's, there's people who can't get, a, get sleep at night because things are controlling your life. There's things that are destroying your marriage because it's controlling your life. It's controlling your attention. It's controlling your focus. And God wants to set us free. Here's what they did they brought it and they burned it. Why would you do something like that? Because they said, we're burning this bridge and we're not making a way back. Sometimes you go, oh, I'll carry the name, but I'm going to still carry all this other stuff too. The next thing that happens is the third one is that they're stripped, they're, they're, they become naked. And, and here's what happens. Oftentimes, a garment would represent, throughout the Bible, it represented identity. Joseph, from his father, was given a coat of many colors as a symbol of his favor as a favored son. And if you can't answer that question, who am I, the world will strip you of who you're created to be. Let's go back to the beginning for just a moment, Genesis 1. Here's the basis, the foundation of who we are and our identity Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All the creeps. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That didn't used to be controversial. Apparently it is now. Okay. But here's what I want you to see. God creates the only thing in all the universe that God created in his image is people. My wife, I think, sometimes likes my dog more than me, but I'm, not, I'm kidding. We love puppies. Puppies are great. The oceans are amazing. The mountains are Beautiful. The stars are incredible, but of all the things that God has made, there's one thing that has his attention. It's what's made in his image. Every person has value to God. Every life matters to God because you're created in the image of God. Jesus didn't die for a tree. He died on a tree for you. He didn't come for religion. He didn't come for the things we've built. He didn't come for for all the beautiful butterflies. He came to rescue the, 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 the very sons and daughters made in the image of God that were orphaned by sin. And he came for us, and I'm telling you today, his eye may be on the sparrow, but he tells us that because he says, listen, if I can pay attention to the smallest of creatures and take care of them, how much more for you? You're made in the image of God. Two chapters later, Genesis 3 comes along. God creates man. He places Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden. He gives them a job. And and he he creates identity. then he tells them, have dominion. First he gives them identity. Then he gives them an assignment. Every person created on planet Earth has identity that's meant to come from God. And has an assignment from heaven. That's the discover purpose part. And if you're not careful, though, you'll think your identity is your assignment. What happens when you retire and your identity was in your job? What happens when your identity was in your children and then they grow up? What happens when your identity is in how many likes you got on Facebook or Instagram? I'm just being real. Like, there's so many things we built our identity on that's temporary instead of what's eternal, and that comes from a name that's greater. Okay, so, so God creates them. He says, Hey, I'm giving you all the trees, all the stuff. It's yours. There's just one tree, one thing that's not to be touched. Everything else is yours. You can freely eat of every tree of the garden, just not this one. And then in Genesis 3, a serpent comes along, personifying evil itself, the, 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 the serpent, the deceiver, Satan. Satan comes along and he comes into the garden. And what's crazy about this thing, we know the story, he comes and he deceives them. And he he says to Eve, he says, well, I know God told you this, but has God really said you can't eat of this tree? Has God really said? Can I just say that the enemy's lie is always questioning what God has said? Jesus tempted in the wilderness in Luke chapter 3. Father from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What does the enemy say? The serpent comes along and says the very same accusation. If you are the son of God. In other words, he calls into question the last thing that heaven said. How many of us are influenced more by the voice of the serpent than the voice of God? I'm just going to be honest. The world is more influenced by the voice of the serpent. And the serpent comes along and says, well, the reason God's saying that is he's afraid you're going to be like him. I don't know. I forgot they were image bearers. But, but the enemy tries to come along and say, yeah, God's not enough. What you have in God isn't enough. So you got to find it outside of that. That lie hasn't changed. He says, God's not right about this. In fact, you're, you surely will not die if you eat of this tree. God knows that you'll be like him if you do that, knowing good and evil. So, so here's, fast forward. They, they eat of the fruit of the tree. Eve does it first, then she gives it to her husband who's passively standing there. Instead of crushing the serpent, he's allowing the serpent to dictate the future of his family. I think we need some serpent crushers in the house. And, and, and the next thing that happens, of course, we know that's the fall. Sin enters the garden, enters the world. Death comes because of sin. That's why Jesus needed to come. But here's what I want you to see. The very first thing that happens when they eat of the fruit of the tree is they become aware of something they weren't aware of before. It says their eyes were open. And, and sometimes we think, well, that's a good thing, but their eyes are open and their life's not better. In fact, their eyes are open to their shame and their nakedness. And for the first time in their entire created existence, they feel something they've never felt before. They're ashamed. And they try to cover, That's as they make for themselves, they sew for themselves garments to cover, but the problem with it is what they try to fix on the outside can't fix what's broken on the inside. I wonder how many names we sew together, we fit together, and we wear it like a garment, but it's actually keeping us separated. And the the biggest problem in the garden was not even their own nakedness and their own shame, but it was the fact that now there was distance between them and the God who loved them. God comes into the garden, right after the encounter with the serpent, God walks in the garden, and here's what he says, where are you? Because as they hear God approaching, they run and hide. And sin always drives us, shame always drives us to create distance between us and God. Where are you? The next thing is they begin to talk, and they begin to reveal and confess what's taken place. They say, when we heard you coming, and And we saw our nakedness. We hid ourselves. And God asks them a question. God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to? And then he gets into the whole thing with the consequences of what took place. But I want you to understand something. That question's still valid for us. Who told you you weren't enough? Who told you God wasn't enough? Who told you that the price he paid couldn't set you free? Who told you you're too old? Who told you you're too young? Who told you you'll always be broken, always be addicted, always bound? It came from the serpent, just like it came from that. God's heart cry, "Where are you?" There was distance now for the first time. The last thing that happens going back to the story in Acts is that the enemy traumatized them. They were wounded, they left naked, they were stripped, but they were wounded. And a wound that doesn't heal will reshape our lives by its presence. And it will oftentimes create, an unhealed wound will create a new identity we were never called to have. There's a woman named Naomi in the Bible. She would later become the mother-in-law, well, she was the mother-in-law of Ruth. They left their homeland. They left Israel. They went to Moab. And while they were there, they experience tremendous loss. Naomi's husband dies. Her two grown sons die. And all she has left are their, their widows, their, their wives, Ruth and, and Orpha. And, and while they're there, as, you know, Naomi says, well, we got nothing left, so let's just go back home. And they begin to journey back home. And, and Naomi's name means something. It means pleasant one. Every time they say her name, Naomi, they're saying, pleasant one. They're calling out to her and she comes back and and her family and her friends that are in uh, Bethlehem see her. And they say, Naomi, pleasant one. She says, don't call me that. And she takes up a name that in Hebrew means bitter. And she says, don't call me pleasant. I'm bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. Her wound becomes her identity. She can't believe the promise of God. She can't believe the goodness of God because all she can see is her pain. And she allows her wound temporarily, thankfully, to become her identity. But we'll see the story of Ruth is a story of redemption, and God restores what is lost and gives her a new identity. But I want you to see this because in the Bible, names matter. And when we don't have, when we don't allow our trauma and hurt to be healed, we will pick up an identity and a name that we were never meant to carry. We will be defined in our life and we'll see ourselves through the lens of who left us, who hurt us, how we failed, what happened, what didn't happen, all of that. Rachel has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. But when Benjamin's born, she dies in childbirth and in the pain of childbirth she cries out and she names her son not Benjamin we'll, he'll get that later but she names him Ben Onai which means son of my sorrow The pain of that moment she passes to the next generation her hurt becomes their hurt her brokenness her experience becomes their experience because she calls her son Ben Onai son of my sorrow But she has a husband named Jacob, and Jacob has experienced a life that follows his name. Jacob means supplanter, heel grabber in Hebrew, and and Jacob is a guy that if you knew him before, he encountered God. Jacob is a guy who lived up to his name, and he would lie, cheat, and steal just to get ahead. He burned every relationship he had up to that point. Esau's brother's mad at him, his uncle, uh, Laban's mad. At, like Everybody gets mad at Jacob because he's going he's gonna to scheme and he's going to fight to get ahead. But he has an encounter with God where God says, you're no longer Jacob, but now you're Israel. I'm changing your name. Israel means prince with God. You were supplanter, but now you're a prince. You were a heel grabber, but now you're a, a, you have a divine royal name. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And Jacob takes his son, Ben Oni. And he says, No, no, no. I've lived with a name that directed my destiny. We're not calling him Ben Oni. And he changes, the father changes his son's name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Do you know what God does? He takes us in our brokenness. He takes us in our shame, our sorrow, our sin. And he says, no, they're they're not going to be defined by this anymore. And the Father gives a new name. He says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Third and final point for those taking notes is that I've already told you we're called to be carriers. Carriers. We're called to carry the good news. We're also called to carry the name. The name that's above every name. The name that redefined our future. The name that gave us hope and a promise. That gave us a future uh, that that was no longer bound by our brokenness and our history. But was now secured by the blood that was shed on a cross 2,000 years ago. That rewrote our future. That no longer what you came from would have to be who you become. Well, it's just the way my family is. This is just... I, I'm just bound. I'm just addicted. I'm, I'm just anxious. I'm just discouraged. I'm just offended. I'm, well, we're not called to carry those names. The carriers live for one thing, to make the name of Jesus magnified. Right after... This whole experience with this guy running out and traumatized and beat these seven, seven sons of Sceva, they get, they get as, my, as my pastor in Florida would say, the devil slapped the yellow off their teeth and beat these guys. They run fleeing naked and broken out of the house, and everybody hears about this. Oh, the name of Jesus is not something to be borrowed or taken lightly and lightly esteemed and it says the name of Jesus was then magnified exalted given its proper place not just how the prayer is ended but the name that still has yet to meet an impossibility that won't bow its knee and it says the name of Jesus was magnified the people here of this and, and they see the work of God and the good news being preached and they come and they bring what has bound them and they surrender it to Jesus and they light it on fire and the church of Ephesus is birthed in a move of God that changes 40,000 plus people would, would, would turn into that started with the name that name still saves that name still sets free That name still heals. That name still restores the broken. What name do you carry? The psalmist said, oh, magnify his name with me. Exalt, let us exalt his name together. Worship is magnifying the name. You can't make the name of Jesus like the angels have been singing it from their creation. And when we magnify the name, we're not actually making it bigger, but we are putting in our own lives the name of Jesus in its proper place. The place only his name belongs. Can I just ask you, what has taken the place of his name in your life? Because that's the thing that belongs on the bonfire. That's the thing that may be holding you back, but today's your day for freedom. I'm asking you to stand to your feet. If our prayer team can come to the front, Thankfully, while I totally messed up someone's name, God's never forgotten yours. When others walked out on you, heaven walked in. When others forsook you, he found you. You're not alone. And whether it's what others have said or what others have done or even like me, your own failure, caused you to run and hide and pick up a bunch of other names that were no longer who you were meant to be. God's calling you and he's calling us to freedom. And I just want to remind you today, if you're facing some impossibilities, there is a name that's greater, highly exalted. The angels will be singing that name for all eternity. And we get to join in that in the chorus of heaven, celebrating the name that rescued us. That that name can make a difference in your life here, right now. I'm asking you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.